Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist System. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we are really excited to have on Matt Abrahams to talk about his new book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here with both of you. So I, I know you have your own podcast out there, but for our podcast audience, can you just tell us a little bit of your background and, um, and, and what you do for a living? Absolutely. And I'm very excited to, to engage in the conversation about communication, which is really my passion. I am a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where I, for the last 13 years, I have taught strategic communication. As you mentioned, I host a podcast called Think Fast, Talk Smart, all about communication. And when I'm not doing that, I do some coaching on communication and, and I have a new book coming out uh, on the same topic. So I live and breathe communication and, and happy to talk about it with all of you. Well, that's that's perfect. So let's let's jump into the book. And um, so I assume that the podcast you said has been out for a while. You have about 100 episodes. Um, mm -hmm. Did that does it cover the same topics as the book or, or what was the inspiration for the book? Yeah. So uh, the podcast is about communication very broadly. We cover everything from how to feel less anxious when you communicate, how to negotiate persuasion, how to be creative and collaborative in your communication. One area of interest, though, for me personally, that, that precedes the podcast was this notion of speaking in the moment how to answer questions, how to give feedback as healthcare professionals. It's how to respond when, when somebody asks you for information. Maybe it's even making small talk. So this notion of spontaneous speaking is something that I've been fascinated by. And the deans at the business school where I teach about eight years ago came to me and said, we have this huge problem. Our students who are very bright and capable aren't able to answer questions when they're asked. You remember back in school when the professor would say, what do you think, that dreaded cold call? Our students yeah. were really struggling with it. And so they asked me to put together some content to help our students. And, and from that, and, I, and through all that time, I've developed a methodology. So the book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, is all about how to be a better speaker in the moment. Oh, that's great. I, I feel like I need some of those tips right now. Um, <laughs> Happy to provide them. Yes. So tell me, um, what are some common communication challenges that your students faced or that you've seen that other individuals have? There are many. Uh, the, the biggest problem that people face is that they get very nervous in high stakes communication situations, be they planned or spontaneous. So when we're put on the spot to respond, uh, we can feel very nervous. And, and talking to medical professionals, you understand what goes on physiologically much better than I do. But suffice it to say, our bodies respond as if they're under threat. So the fight or fight response gets activated. And the thing I work most with people at first on is how to reduce that anxiety. The goal is to manage it, not overcome it. I don't believe we can ever truly overcome our anxiety, but there are simple things we can do to manage it. And management requires two things, addressing symptoms as well as sources. So many people say that their heart beats faster, they get a little shaky, their mouth goes dry, and there are things we can do to address that. But there are also sources, and those are the things that initiate and exacerbate our anxiety. So the first step is managing anxiety. 
the second step is to help people get out of their own way. A lot of people want to be perfect when they communicate. They want to do it right. I've been doing this a long time. There is no right way to communicate. There are better ways and worse ways, but no right way. So we have to deal with the physiological. We also have to uh, deal with the mental part of it. So lots that we can do. Once we get it under control, we can then feel more comfortable and confident when we speak. Yeah, so I was looking a little bit on, on Amazon about the description of your book. Um, yes. One of the things um, you have on there is you help clients with making small talk. Yeah. Um, so my wife and I are very are two very different people. Um, mm. She's going to talk to the person next to her on the airplane the entire flight. <laughs> I'm going to put on my headphones and read my book. Um, if we go to parties, she can talk to the wall, um, whereas <laughs> I got to find that person that I, I really know and I'm comfortable with uh, to talk with. Um, wh- what do you, you know, I, I kind of thought that was more of a, a character trait as opposed to something I could improve. Is So what, what do you give as far as advice in the book about people that want to get better at making small talk? So first, small talk. First, I should say your your relationship with your wife is the exact opposite of my relationship with my wife. Uh, My (laughs) wife is more more introverted. I'm clearly uh, an extreme extrovert. So I get it. I get those dynamics. And it's interesting to see the other person's perspective and approach. First thing I say about small talk is we have to rebrand it. Small talk, many of us dread or we feel it's a necessary evil. I think small talk can lead to big things. It can lead to learning about ourselves and others. It can lead to collaboration and connection. So we need to think best about how to do it. Everybody can get better at spontaneous speaking, period. People feel like, oh, I'm just not born to do that well. I don't have the gift of gab. We can all learn to get better at it. And the book is is predicated on that. And I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the life of my students, the people I coach. When it comes to small talk specifically, I have a couple bits of advice. I, on my podcast, interviewed a a really fascinating person. Her name is Rachel Greenwald. She is a professional matchmaker and an academic. Really interesting combination. And she has a a mantra that she says is really important for, for small talk. And that is, the goal is to be interested, not interesting. Many of us go into these small talk chit chat situations feeling like we have to be the most interesting person in the room. We have to say things that are just scintillating and and really interesting when, in fact, all we have to do is ask questions and demonstrate interest and concern. And when we take that pressure off of ourselves to I I, I envision it's like when you play tennis, you try to serve something over the net so it scores instead of seeing it that way. See it more like a game of hacky sack. You remember that little beanbag game you play where the whole goal is to keep the ball off the ground and you, you do it well if you set the other person up to hit it back to you. So if we reframe it as the whole thing is something that's positive, if we go in knowing we just have to ask questions and be interested, we can do it much more easily and with all the without that stress that all of us feel. I like the analogy of, of, you know, keeping the hacky sack in the air, you know, keeping the ball in the air. That's uh, that's a good approach. Uh, Absolutely. And and I think a lot of we can reframe a lot of our communication as being in service of our audience. Many of us have the spotlight shining on us and we say, I have to do it right. And and everybody's judging me and you are being evaluated. But 
most of the time when you are communicating, people want to hear what you say. I mean, all of you in the medical profession, the people you talk to often want to hear from you. And if you can remind yourself that there is value I have to bring, that can reduce the pressure and it opens up conversation, dialogue and collaboration. So when we talk about communication, it's it's not just speaking, but it may also be listening. And when you talk about your audience, so can you talk about why um, this is a vital aspect, I guess, of effective communication? Yeah, so really, you know, I've been studying communication for decades. And, and as I've hosted this podcast and talked to so many other communication experts, the, the idea of listening has risen to the top of what's most important in these circumstances. We have to listen to be able to communicate better. And one of my colleagues at the, at the business school, uh, his name is Collins Dobbs. He teaches a class on crucial communication and he uses a framework that I have asked with his permission to use to describe and teach listening. And I have to start by saying that you have to take what I say in perspective. My wife, after hearing me teach about listening, will always say you, that I need to practice what I teach because I'm still working yeah. on this. Yeah, there, there are three steps in this methodology for listening, and it is pace, space, grace. We all live in a frenetically paced world. Things are moving really fast. We're getting people asking us a lot of things all at the same time. We need to slow down. And when we slow down, we can focus. And the fact that we take the time to really connect with somebody by slowing down is a tremendous benefit. Not only are we likely to get the information accurately that they're sharing, but we validate them. It feels good to be really listened to. We also have to give ourselves space, not just physical space. As I get older, it's harder for me to hear. I need to be in a quiet space, but I also mean mental space. A lot of us, as soon as we hear something, we start judging and evaluating and rehearsing. That takes us away from really being present oriented and listening. And then the last step is grace. You have to give yourself permission to listen. Listening is actually an active thing, as well as give yourself permission to listen to what is happening inside of you. We all have our past history. We have our readings, our learnings. And when somebody says something, we have intuition that, that comes up. And we have to give ourselves permission not just to listen to the other person, but also to listen to what comes up for us. And if we give ourselves pace, space, grace, we will not only connect better, but we will likely respond better because we have really honed our message to what's needed. So you are so right. Listening is really, really important. So let's shift a little bit into, you know, the communication between maybe physicians and patients and talk about that for a moment. Um, we all know brilliant doctors that are terrible communicators or have bad bedside manner, um, you know, and, they're just not good at that small talk leading up to you know, the actual clinical encounter. They want to just dive into maybe the you know, diagnosis and treatment and focus just on that as opposed to getting to know the whole person. Um, what have you seen from from that standpoint? Uh, I, I think you mentioned that you had worked with healthcare professionals in the past. I have, what, sort yeah, of, yeah. what sort of things do you work on, particularly in healthcare, uh, around communication? Yeah, so I do a fair amount of work with Stanford's medical school. Uh, in fact, I just, before talking to you, was talking to the dean of the medical school. Uh, so I, I have some appreciation. Again, being audience-centric is really important. When we have expertise, 
and we are rushed and and there's a lot of move quickly and yeah. and lots of life but certainly in the medical profession uh we can just get to the facts we can just relay facts our job is just to get information across but we all know intuitively and sometimes uh just explicitly that the connection and emotion that's involved is really important and many healthcare providers are dealing with really sensitive important personal issues that they need to be communicating and and to take the time to connect and to reflect and even to allow questions can make a huge difference in somebody's life you know people who go into the medical professions want to help people and we sometimes do it or i sometimes see a disservice done because they're not actually taking just that extra moment to connect and we often feel like it 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 takes a time it's a there's a burden of time there but i would argue that down the road having not done that you actually end up spending more time by getting repeated calls or having to follow up so the time up front might actually save you time on the back end i do have something i'd like to share about an approach that seems to work well at least with our medical professionals here at stanford i'm a big fan of structure i think structure really helps and by structure i mean a logical connection of the information you're saying it's not just a list many times we in lots of professions but especially the medical profession will just list information here are the results and here's what the results mean here's the list uh here's the list of the condition right just list and our brains are not good with lists it's hard and especially if you're emotional stressed nervous not feeling well remembering a list is hard so a structure can help and i have a really easy structure to remember it's three questions what so what now what So imagine you're you're giving somebody a diagnosis and recommending a a a path of of uh for them to take a treatment path. So the diagnosis is the what? Here's what's going on. The so what is here's why it matters. And then the now what is what comes next. If you were to package up your conversations in that way, it would be easier to remember, it will probably be more concise, and because of that so what piece, the why it matters, it brings that connection and emotion into what's being said. so it can be really helpful last thing i'll say and i know i'm going on very long even though i'm talking about being concise most of us in our communication but especially medical professionals you have to remember that what you're telling the patient or the customer or whatever your role is they often are going to turn around and have to stay say what you said to somebody else they have to communicate it to their family to their colleagues to their coworkers and if you as the person giving the initial information package it up well they can then take what you said and repeat it in a way that has high fidelity so there's not a lot of um misinformation and that's really important so as medical professionals you're not just talking to the person in front of you you're talking to all the people that they will in turn talk to based on what you've said so this notion of structure is really important no i really like that structure um i think it's a great framework for how to think about it do you do or do you suggest uh your medical professionals do anything different when they're de- delivering maybe some devastating news like a new cancer diagnosis or yeah. or something like that cuz you know, I've I've heard in the past that after you give the what then yeah they don't hear anything else yes yeah no that's exactly right and and so it might mean that you have to stage your conversation your communication uh it might mean that you just have to take time to to be silent to just be present and let people experience what that information is there's a wonderful saying that comes from the world of improv i love improvisation and it has so much to teach us about just living life it's not just about trying to be funny uh, there's a saying in improv that says don't just do something stand there 
And I love that because what it means is sometimes the most important thing you can do is just be present for somebody. And when you give bad news or challenging news to somebody, just being present and listening for a moment can be really powerful. But I do think you have to be very mindful. You have to you have to read the room. You have to set the expectations. You have to explain it. Maybe listen and wait. Maybe ask permission to go on and tell more. Say, hey, we can talk more later about what comes next. Being very mindful of the impact your communication will have on people. I still think the what, so what, now what structure is the right way to do it. You might just have a long pause between the what so and so what and then the now what. I love that. Um, so are there other practical exercises or strategies from your book that we as listeners can start implementing um, right away to become better communicators? Sure. Let me share you. A let me share. Let me share two. Uh, we've already talked about listening. We've already talked a bit about anxiety uh, and we've talked about structure. Uh, the, the process I, I talk about in the book, the first half of the book is a six step methodology that people can follow. And then the, the last part of the book is specific spontaneous speaking situations like having to introduce somebody or give a toast or having to persuade somebody in the moment. So lots of specific examples. My but brother's getting really... married uh, next month. So any tips on oh. the toast, I would love to hear those. <laughs> okay, so let me answer the first question and then I'll give you, I've got very specific things to say about toasts. So many of us see these circumstances, these spontaneous speaking circumstances as challenges, as threats. We have to do it well because they're high stakes. And there are, and I'm not saying there aren't. But in those moments, if we can reframe this as an opportunity, even if I'm having to give a devastating diagnosis to somebody, it is an opportunity for me to connect with them and to try to help as best I can. Many of us feel like, oh, man, I've got to go do this. It's awful. And I can't, you know, and it is. And I'm glad that we feel some of that challenge. But if we can reframe it as some source of opportunity or benefit. That helps us and it ultimately helps our communication because we'll be more open, we'll likely give more detail, we'll, we'll be more present. So reframing is really important. And then the other thing is we have to be really concise and clear. As we are more and more bombarded with lots of information, the ability to be concise is really important. And the ability to be virtual when we're virtual and we're not all present, super important. To, to be concise. So how do you get more concise? You need to think to yourself before you speak, what is my goal here? And a goal to me has three parts, know, feel, do. What do I want the person to know? How do I want them to feel? And what do I want them to do? And when you ask yourself that as you go into these situations, it helps you focus on what not to say, right? It helps you focus on what not to say so you can say things most effectively. So it's about reframing, to see it as an opportunity. It's about working to be more concise by having a goal. And I will tell you my tips for giving a toast. I have a structure, I call it the what structure, W-H-A-T. The W stands for why are we here? Now, obviously if it's at a wedding, everybody knows why you're there. So you don't have to spend time on that or much time. But the, the H is how are you connected to the event? You said it was your brother. Maybe people in the room don't know that you're the brother of the groom. So you might say, I'm the brother of the groom and, say something nice about him. And then the A is for anecdote. And it's important to tell short, quick stories, but I have a few rules about these stories. They need to be relevant to everybody. They need to be appropriate and they need to be concise. So you need to think through your, your anecdotes. And then the, the T is the thanks or the toast at the end. So something that you would say to actually give the toast. So you wanna explain why you're there. You wanna explain how you're connected, give an anecdote or two, and then the toast. 
That will help you be concise, clear, and memorable. That's very good advice. Yeah, I was always try to do something funny, serious, yeah. or, or something, a, a funny anecdote, a serious anecdote, another funny anecdote than the toast. <laughs> I think that's great. And as long as they're appropriate, I think that's great. And the only thing I advise That's the trouble, yeah. 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 The thing I advise everybody who's, tr who's using humor, focus group or test your humor out. Tell it to some other people first. Uh, we are not the best judges of what we yeah. think is funny is being funny. And I'm not saying you're not funny. You're probably very hysterical, but I would still test the jokes Hilarious. out with other yeah. people. Yeah, for sure. What about um, given presentations, um, you know, grand rounds, something like that? You know, any any particular tips related to to those sorts of engagements? Say that one more time about what? Um, you know, if I was going to give like a, a formal presentation on a clinical yes. topic to, you know, a grand yeah. rounds presentations, as we call them, any. Yeah. So so the, the challenge is uh, you all know too much about what it is that you're communicating about. You suffer from the curse of knowledge. And the only antidote to the curse of knowledge is empathy. You have to be understanding of what the people know need to know and when they need to know it. So I, I can imagine in these, these circumstances where you're walking around with, with uh, medical students or postdocs, you need to make sure that you address at the levels that are appropriate. Similarly, we use a lot of jargon and a lot of acronyms. If people don't understand what it is you're talking about, you put them at a disadvantage. So we need to make sure that we're defining our terms. Now, I know these grand rounds are an opportunity to teach, but part of being a good teacher is scaffolding people. It's not just throwing them into the deep end. You have to scaffold so that they can actually learn and benefit. So in those circumstances, I, I would say we have to work against the curse of knowledge. We have to think about what's needed in the moment and then scaffold people to those points. So my question is about digital communication. Yeah, you sure. know, we text, we email. And and I don't feel like we have as many face-to-face um, -face conversations. So has that affected communication in any way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've seen the prolifer proliferation of technology into how we communicate everything from mobile devices to virtual tools like Zoom, Meet, and Teams to generative AI. It absolutely has an impact. And we need to think about how we have to adjust our communication. So let me give you a, a couple examples. Uh, in terms of the technology, like a virtual call, we need to go out of our way to engage our audience. So we might ask them to type something in the chat, to use the reactions, because when they're remote, as many of us know, it's really hard to understand if they're paying attention and focused. We also have to be very mindful of our nonverbal presence when we are using technology. Many years ago, pre-pandemic, uh, I was asked by the Stanford Medical School to help with their telemedicine. They were just exploring yeah. telemedicine in a certain area. And we learned something fascinating. So we, we were doing test runs where a patient would tell a medical provider uh, a condition. Uh, the patient would say whatever's going on for them, maybe show them with a camera. And then the doctor, upon hearing this, as soon as they, the patient finished explaining, the doctor would turn their head away. And the patient thought, oh, my goodness, I'm dying. Whatever I said, this is going to be bad news. It turns out the doctor was just turning to type things into the medical uh, record system. And the patient was having an amazingly negative, negative reaction at this moment when, in fact, they were just entering data. So all we did is we told the, the care provider, 
look at the camera, say, thank you for giving me a, a recounting of your symptoms. I'm going to type that into the system for just a moment. And just by giving that disclaimer, the entire interaction changed, the, the, how people rated it, how people felt in terms of being connected to the medical care provider. So there are little subtle things is what I'm trying to say that we need to think about. We also have to, again, think about being concise and clear because when you are virtual, uh, you ha you're sitting on a device, a laptop, a phone that has lots of other things going on that could distract you. So that notion of being clear, concise, and structured becomes really important. Yeah, that, that is some really great advice. And it was a great question, Amanda. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and I know we only have a, a few minutes remaining, yes. but you mentioned um, – you know, chat GPT a second ago or these these open AI um, mm -hmm. responses. And we're seeing more and more of that show up in communication. There was a recent paper that analyzed um, that had patients analyze the responses from physicians re regarding their, you know, their um, what they sent through the patient portal versus chat GPT's response. And the patients found that the AI was more empathetic than the physicians overall, and the overall quality they rated as equal. Um, what is that? What can we learn from that? And how do you expect these new tools to influence communication going forward? Yeah, I mean, I find that fascinating, right? Now, the the advantage that generative AI has over any one individual is they're culling together a tremendous amount of data. So, you know, we all we're an N of one and we only know our own experience and, and it has the advantage of lots of experience. So it, it can put together a message that, that might be more empathetic or might be more appropriately detailed. I think the lesson there is that we have to really focus on things that, that help us be empathetic when we work with patients, when we work with students or, or whoever. And we need to be thinking about what are the criteria on which or by which people are evaluating those interactions. So what is it that, that ChatGPT, BARD, and the like are putting into those responses that are having them be perceived as empathetic, and how can we learn from that? You know, I, there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about generative AI, and there are a lot of reasons to be excited about it. I think one thing that's exciting is that we can learn to connect better with others by seeing what this vast amount of information culled together uh, can show us about what human beings see as empathetic. So I actually think it's cool, the study findings, and I think if we take it to the next step and learn really what's being said in those messages can be really, really helpful for all of us, not just in our professional lives, but in our personal lives as well. Very well said. Well, well, thank you, Matt. Um, this has been a great conversation. I know I've learned a lot, and I look forward to to reading your book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Um, and thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Connecting the Dots. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.